quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. So what happened with the Mar-a-Lago pool? In a CNN exclusive, sources say an employee of Donald Trump's drained the swimming pool last October and ended up flooding a room in the resort. That's the room where the computer servers containing surveillance video logs were kept. So was this just a messy mistake? Maybe, but it aroused investigators' suspicions because it happened amid a series of events that they found curious. So tonight we're gonna look at those key events at Mar-a-Lago. Also today, Donald Trump's lawyers went to the Justice Department and met with special counsel Jack Smith. Our panel explains what that tells us. Plus, you've heard how school districts are banning controversial books. So what about the Bible or the Book of Mormon? That is happening in one Utah school district and our panel has a lot of thoughts on that. And do you always give your Uber driver a five-star rating? It turns out a lot of us do. And it's not because we think they're great drivers. It's because we're scared. Tonight, we'll see what ratings they give us. Okay, but let's begin with our CNN exclusive reporting on the Trump investigation at Mar-a-Lago and the flood at the resort's swimming pool. This happened last October as prosecutors obtained evidence that boxes of White House records were being moved around by Donald Trump's staff. Prosecutors are examining whether there was any effort to obstruct the DOJ's investigation after the former president was subpoenaed in May 2022 for classified documents. Joining me with her reporting on this is CNN senior crime and justice reporter, Caitlin Polance. We also have Mark Caputo, national political reporter for The Messenger, who can give us a lay of the land at Mar-a-Lago, and senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig, as well as former Watergate prosecutor, John Sale. Great to have all of you. Okay, so Caitlin, um, why, what makes prosecutors think that this flood um, at the pool at Mar-a-Lago is anything more than just, you know, an accident? Well, Allison, we don't know if they think that it's more than that. We just know it's something that they are asking about. And they're asking about it because they have been trying to get to the bottom uh, of the possibility that people may have wanted to obstruct justice. So at the top of the pyramid would be Donald Trump. And the question is, did Donald Trump, uh, was he directing people to potentially take steps that would thwart investigators as they were trying to locate all of the documents at Mar-a-Lago and find out where everything went as they were failing to get those documents back up leading up to that search in August. And so this particular situation in October of last year, this is a maintenance worker draining the pool at Mar-a-Lago and then that pool water causing a flood in the very room where video surveillance footage and equipment was being kept at the resort. Um, That is just a piece of a constellation of activity that investigators are asking out about, especially about the actions of 
this particular maintenance worker. This is someone who was captured on surveillance tape helping another Trump employee move boxes. Uh, And we know that investigators are also asking about conversations that these men were having with others in the Trump universe about the surveillance tape. So they're asking this question because there's just a number of different things that happened that when you take it all together, uh, it is a lot of stuff happening around surveillance tapes that the Justice Department was trying to lock down as part of this investigation, surveillance tapes that would show that boxes had been moved within the resort uh, at a time whenever the Trump team was not fully able to hand over all of the documents at Mar-a-Lago. So, Caitlin, you're explaining that there was a confluence of events in that October. So the timing is what gives the investigators some pause. Did they already have the surveillance tapes by then? Well, they had some of them, Allison. So we we do know that there was a subpoena right before the search of Mar-a-Lago in August by the FBI that was court authorized. And that subpoena went to the Trump Organization. They did hand over surveillance tapes. But our understanding is that there were several other requests for surveillance tapes after that. And it became clear uh, to people who worked for Donald Trump after that, that the Justice Department was interested in those surveillance tapes. We know his body man, Walt Nada, one of the other people captured on some of these tapes, was asked about it with investigators and then changed attorneys in the fall, stopped communicating with investigators at that time. Uh, And so in the course of this investigation in the fall. We don't know exactly what date this flood happened, um, but we do know it was in October and there were requests, demands for that surveillance footage from the Trump Organization both before and after that time. Okay. Thank you for all that. Let me pull up that map that we have again of Mar-a-Lago and let me bring in Mark Caputo. So, Mark, you've been to Mar-a-Lago several times and on this map that we have of... um, Mar-a-Lago, we can see where the pool is, and then we can see where the storage room is, though we don't know exactly which room it was that was flooded. So what do we need to know about Mar-a-Lago and how it's laid out, et cetera? Well, what I can say, you know, it's difficult to describe without me seeing the map, is the place it does have a lot of security. It, it has its own private security. And the time uh, I was there most recently, there were uh, police cars with uh, agents who had uh, AR-15 style semi-automatic weapons. So I don't think it's the kind of place you can really walk in. Now, as a member of the press, I would have to get credentialed ahead of time. Uh, other people have been able to kind of slip in as guests of guests or of members, I should say, at Mar-a-Lago. But it doesn't and it didn't strike me as a place where you could just kind of wander around and look around willy-nilly without mm-hmm. someone asking you what's going That's on. That's interesting, Mark, because we all remember the story in 2019 of the suspected Chinese spy who had something like nine. She was discovered at Mar-a-Lago. She had something like nine right. flash drives. She had four cell phones. She couldn't explain why she was carrying a hard drive with her. So uh, I don't think that we knew that, that it had that level of security. Right. Well, I I wasn't there for that. Uh, But, uh, you know, what I can say is in talking to the Trump campaign about this and prior to it being a campaign, his advisors and some of his attorneys, one of the arguments that they've made about Mar-a-Lago, understand this is their argument, is that it was designated as a skiff, as a secure facility for the time he was president. Remember, uh, actually, on the Mar-a-Lago patio, he had a meeting with uh, Japan's 
uh, prime minister at one point to discuss some sort of international crisis. So th there's been a lot of history that's unfolded there since Donald Trump has been president and while he's been a presidential candidate. But for the period of time I was there, as I said, you know, I didn't really have a lot of, of free movement. But then again, I'm not a member. I'm not a, a guest of a member. I'm a member of the press. So the rules are a little different for us. Yes, understood. OK, Ellie. So uh, prosecutors find some of this curious. What would they have to prove? What, what would they have to do, I guess, in order to prove that there was sabotage with this pool incident? Yeah, so in order for this to mean anything to prosecutors, they have to prove this was intentional as opposed to an accident. I would start with a bunch of questions that I have, and maybe these are more from my experience with pools than as a prosecutor, <laughs> right? Like, how often are they draining this pool? Was this scheduled or not scheduled maintenance? How did it end up that usually, like, pool engineering, it would drain away from sensitive areas and not into areas where servers are. And what you're also looking for is any sort of testimony or statement showing that somebody said, hey, get down there, let the pool loose, let's see where it goes, that kind of thing. And that's why they seize the phones, which they're surely analyzing. John, part of why prosecutors um, have some reason to be concerned about what, about how forthcoming the Trump team is, is because they have a history of trying to get back these documents and them not being turned over readily. We had the timeline up a moment ago. I'll just quickly recap it for everybody. It was in May 2021, okay, that the National Archives first contacts the Trump team to locate missing items. Eight months later, they finally, the National Archives, received 15 boxes of White House records from Mar-a-Lago. They're assured that that's all there is, okay? Then another five months later, they have to subpoena they have to subpoena Donald Trump because they realize that there are still missing documents. Then in August, three months later, the FBI has to execute a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago because they still have not turned stuff over. Then the DOJ requests that the Trump Organization preserve additional footage. That's in October. And then in October, there's this Mar-a-Lago, maybe pool accident, maybe something else. Well, originally, there were negotiations to get the documents back. They dragged on. The game changer was the subpoena. Once there's a grand jury subpoena, it's no longer optional. At that point, the pres former president was required to turn over everything called for in the subpoena. He could have gone to court to sort, seek some relief from it, or he could have what's called submitted a privilege log where he's saying, hey, I'm holding the various things back. Here's the reason and let a judge decide. But what you cannot do is selectively turn over some things and not others. I think this pool... Uh, not to be use a pun, but I think the prosecutor is swimming upstream with the pool. I mean, I think I <laughs> think they I think they really can do a lot better. There was a an article in the Daily Beast recently that said that the Trump lawyers think there may be a snitch amongst them. Well, of course, there's an insider, and how do we know that? Because there was a search warrant, and a search warrant meant they had probable cause to believe that there was evidence of a crime at Mar-a-Lago, and they have an insider. And that's in the search warrant affidavit, but that remains redacted. So we don't know who it is. Really interesting. Okay, Ellie, uh, what does it mean that Trump lawyers today met with Jack Smith himself, the special counsel? So to me, the fact that Jack Smith was in attendance, and we didn't know this until later in the day, is what's really important here. So John knows, of course, that this is very common where prosecutors will sit down with defense lawyers. I know it may sound unusual to people who think it's all just adversarial. No, you give defense lawyers a chance to come in and make a pitch. We call it a reverse proffer because the defense lawyer is usually saying, here's problems in your case, here's why it's a bad idea for you to charge. Now, sometimes as a prosecutor, you make them defense lawyers go through the levels. Well, you have to start with the guys on the line, like what I was. Then you can work your way up to the boss. 
And here we know they met with the boss. This is Jack Smith's case. And I do not think DOJ is going to grant a second meeting with Merrick Garland. So naturally, this kind of meeting would happen at the end of a case. So it tells me they're really getting into the closing stages here. You agree, John? Not entirely. Ellie and I served in the same U.S. Attorney's Office here in the Southern District. A few years so, apart. Yeah, well, two years apart. <laughs> but I, th- according to the Trump lawyers, they released a letter publicly that accused the prosecutors, maybe the FBI agents, of misconduct. When you, I, the meeting may have been restricted to that. Now, you know, you can make a lot of noise about misconduct. I deal with, in my practice, I deal with FBI agents, AUS, Assistant U.S. Attorneys all the time. Most of them are very honorable. They don't agree with me, but they're very honorable. Every now and then, there is misconduct, and I call it out. But you need evidence of it. You can't be the boy who cried wolf. So I don't think it's surprising that Jack Smith sat in when there was a discussion of alleged misconduct by his own people. Yeah, I think we agree on that. There you go. Fantastic. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, Thank you very much, Caitlin and Mark, as well. So next, our panel has a field day with the pool. More now on the DOJ's latest moves in the Trump classified document case and CNN's exclusive reporting about the flood from the pool at Mar-a-Lago that flooded the room where the surveillance video logs were kept. Our panel is here. We have Jessica Washington of The Root. John Sale is back. Republican strategist Joe Pinion and Rolling Stone columnist Jay Michelson. Great to have all of you J-named people here <laughs> with me tonight. OK, um, Joe, you're not buying the pool conspiracy theory. Look, pools flood. That's just a reality of life. I think anybody who has been convinced that uh, the Trump family is effectively a crime syndicate that latched itself onto the Oval Office uh, will say, Jacques, there we go. Uh, they have, of course, flooded the entirety of the compound for the purposes of... Just one room. Of... Don't go overboard. Well, look. <laughs> water, water metaphor. Go ahead. Look, I, I just think that at some point, uh, if you're wondering why there are people out there who think they're out to get President Trump, it's because sometimes even a simple flood of a pool gets blown up into a national conspiracy for the purposes of trying to conceal an ongoing crime. Yeah. And I mean, just to be clear, that the reporting is that prosecutors find it suspicious because that was a month when a lot of stuff was happening. So I, 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 I not- think that prosecutors found it suspicious and somehow it ended up in a news report. So I think, look, we should follow the truth wherever it leads us. I think we should follow the facts wherever it leads us. I think that we're having serious conversations about the lack of security around premier primary documents for the United States government from President Trump to Joe Biden to the vice president Pence. So all of those conversations are pertinent, but I do think, again, when we're talking about the pool flooding, yep. I think we perhaps have jumped a shark. Wow. I like that reference because I do feel like this is an episode from season five or season six, you know, of the crime <laughs> drama where they're really desperate for ideas. And it's like, oh, I know they flooded the pool or the, and the, the documents, but it was the pump and they're, they're going to blame it on the pool guy or something. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there is a silver lining to this story. Oh, it's like kind of like a pool. I know. Lining. Believe me, oh, there's a lot. Happening. There's a lot to work here, which is that maybe this will, uh, you know, draw some attention to the seriousness of what's under, underneath this. I tend to agree with Joe. I mean, I, I'm not totally persuaded that, you know, the pool guy did it. But uh, again, you know, it's, it's, tr- it's difficult to keep attention on the seriousness of this story because there's so many others going mm-hmm. on. And so I, I think while I'm not convinced by the pool story, it's serving a higher good. Jessica. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd have to agree. Look, it is obviously suspicious that the surveillance room was flooded by the pool. Like, I don't think there's any other way to talk about that. But, I mean, it doesn't prove anything. We're absolutely not at a point of proving anything. But it is a problem that Mar-a-Lago had so many security breaches, that there were classified documents being held there, that there was reports of things being shredded. There's a lot more to this, and I agree that it just kind of brings a spotlight back on it, whether or not we had a pool guy who intentionally tried to flood the surveillance room. John, here's a question that I didn't get to with my last guest, Mark Caputo, who knew a lot about Mar-a-Lago, and I wish I had because I hadn't thought about it this way before. If the crime of mishandling classified documents happened in Florida, is that where, if, 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 if Donald Trump were to be indicted, is that where he would be tried? Is that where there'd be a trial in Florida or D.C.? Florida's can choose venue. Uh, Prosecutors can choose venue. And it's where anything happened. And the documents were in Washington, they were in the National Archives, and they were in Mar-a-Lago. So the prosecutors can choose their venue, and I can assure you they will choose Washington, D.C. Why is that? Uh, because I think it's a friendlier venue for them. For prosecutors. Uh, for, for prosecutors, Because Florida, for sure. and obviously sure. around Mar-a-Lago, would be a very friendly yeah. venue yeah. for Donald Trump. Uh, more, more likely. And of course, it, it, this is only assuming that he's indicted. But you know, I live and practice in Florida, and let me tell you, just Friday, a retired Army officer was sentenced to three years in prison for improper retention of some classified documents. Hey, General Petraeus was prosecuted for that. Sandy Berger, high up in the Clinton White House, was prosecuted for that. So I think pool that's a silly diversion. But what is not silly is uh, Mr. Corcoran gave a sw- drafted a sworn what statement. Donald Trump's former attorney? Former attorney for Mr. Trump gave a sworn statement in which he said a thorough search was conducted, and he turned over 38 classified documents. Well, then the search uncovered over 100. So there's something wrong there, and classified documents just cannot be mishandled or cannot be used to detriment the national interest. The pool is silly, but when you're talking about possible invasion plans of Iran, that's serious. Well, look, and I I think we should all agree that there clearly uh, has been a lack of care demonstrated by the people we have entrusted with our national secrets. I think the problem, and we've talked about this before, is that the case may indeed be booby-trapped. I think when you look at uh, potentially what happened uh, with Vice President, uh, well, then Vice President Biden, or even going back to when he was in the Senate, uh, I think the DOJ puts himself in a precarious position. Whereas to proceed with President Trump, I think also uh, leads them to a position where they may be forced to also but proceed. don't you see a distinction, a distinction here, Joe, between these cases, namely that now President Biden and former Vice President Pence cooperated right away. Well, look, I, I, I will say this. My, my co-pilot in crime, Ellie Koenig, he, he is no longer on the set. So I have, I, I, I'm out here without a chaperone. But I will say this. I, I think at some point we have to you know, recognize that uh, we are here to talk about the letter of the law. If we're simply talking about the letter of the law, uh, the letter of the law in many ways was not followed when it comes to President Trump, when it comes to uh, Vice President, then Vice President Pence, when it comes to uh, He's since been Biden. cleared, by the way. Look, I, I just think, again, it, the, the reality of the, of the issue is that either we have a law that is applied universally to everyone or it's not. But it and was think- applied universally. The, the National Archives wanted stuff back. They reached out to these teams. Two of the teams 
returned the documents. One of them didn't. Look, again, I, I'm not the attorney and certainly you might be able to speak to this better than I will, but I, I, I will say this. Uh, the notion that somehow, oh, they asked for it back and we gave it back is not in itself absolving yourself of the underlying crime. So I just think that we have to have a, a broader conversation here about that. But I, look, I, I think, again, as I said at the top, yeah. we should follow the facts wherever they lead. We should understand what President Trump knew, yeah. when he knew it, yeah. and from there, we'll be able to have a broader conversation about that. Quickly, your thoughts, Everybody's learning the term mens rea now, right? Which is exactly what Trump knew and when he knew it. And I think some of the revelations in the last couple of weeks are extremely significant and do, I think, differentiate this case from the case of Biden and Pence. And, and you know, I just think time is of the essence. Justice delayed is justice denied. And the closer this gets to the primaries, the more politicized this becomes, not less. And I know, you know, having briefly worked for, for Attorney General Garland, you know, he's a very deliberate, careful person. Now is also a time for deliberate speed in, in terms of uh, just recognizing the reality that the later this goes, the more this becomes, this, this becomes incredibly politicized. When? Uh, if this waits, I mean, it's a, there's no magic date, right? But just the closer we get to the to the primaries, if Trump remains the front runner, um, it's hard for the other candidates, and we'll talk about that maybe later on, to define themselves when there's this uncertainty around the, the front runner by a lot. And so it's, I think, obviously not rushing the investigation anyway, but there needs to be, it's time to put the cards on the table and we need to see what's really, what's really true so we can stop guessing uh, and actually move forward. Yeah, I just want to say quickly, uh, Jack Smith, the special counsel, will follow the law and the facts. There is, oh, we're forgetting, there is also a special counsel without any leaks who's investigating the Biden situation. And that special counsel will also report to the AG his analysis of law and the facts, and each will be decided on its own. Of course, the obstruction, I think, will tip the balance, but each special counsel is doing their job. I appreciate you pointing that out. Also, uh, former President Trump denies all wrongdoing, though he does not deny having the documents. He has talked often about having these classified documents, but he denies that it was wrong for him. And to let's that. give him the presumption of innocence, the very Constitution. He said we should suspend, should protect him, and give him presumption of innocence. Thank you for pointing that out, John. Excellent point. Thank you very much, everyone. All right. GOP presidential candidate Tim Scott going on The View to fight back against the ladies' ideas about racism. But it was these comments that most upset the audience. Disney and Ronnie have been in a combat zone for a number of months over what I thought was the right issue as it relates to our young kids and what they're being indoctrinated with them. He's one of these guys who, you know, he's like Clarence Thomas, black Republican who believes in pulling yourself by your bootstraps rather than, to me, understanding the systemic racism that African-Americans face in this country and other minorities. He doesn't get it. Neither does uh, Clarence. Right. And that's why they're Republicans. Well, that's the comment that Tim Scott says prompted him to go on The View today to fight back. Here's what he said in response. One of the things I think about, and one of the reasons why I'm on the show, is because of the comments that were made, frankly, on this show, that the only way for a young African-American kid to be successful in this country is to be the exception and not the rule. That is a dangerous, offensive, disgusting message to send to our young people today, that the only way to succeed is by being the exception. I will tell you that if my life is the exception... Uh, I can't imagine... But, but, I can't but it Im- is. But it's not, actually. Here's, here's, it's been here's 114 my, years. Yes. We are joined now by co-host of the Fifth Column podcast, Michael Moynihan. He's joining our panel along with Jessica, Joe, and Jay. They're all back. Okay, so Jessica, your thoughts on both of those perspectives? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's fundamentally confusing to me, what Tim Scott's perspective, because his idea of what this country is just doesn't completely match up. And what I would say is just, he says he's not the exception, but he clearly is. You know, I think that there are a lot of Black Americans who are able to be financially successful in this country that definitely exists, but it is not the rule. I think the rule in this country is it is really hard to escape poverty. It is really hard to escape systemic racism. And I think to try and act as if those things aren't real, I think does a real disservice to, you know, efforts to try and mitigate those issues. Michael, how do you see it? I mean, I think Joy Behar's comments, and note that she wasn't there today. I thought I that know. was a bit curious. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I think I later heard show that up she has that off on Mondays. I was like, how she Is that, that right? Girl? Is she a barber? <laughs> She's off on Mondays. Okay, well, that comment by her is offensive and stupid, uh, particularly when it's coming from the white lady on the panel who is telling black people how to be black. Is there anything more offensive? Because it presumes, first of all, that there is only one way to be black, and the arbiter of that is the lady on The View. And Tim Scott, you know, a lot of a lot of policy disagreements with him. I think he handled himself very well today. He came on, was willing to go into the lion's den, and he did it with like a smile on his face. He couldn't lose by going on there. It's like, why not go on there? He's polling at one, between 1% one and 2%, like behind uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. And he went there and he did, he did well. And Republicans were really happy about this. I saw on Twitter today that, that thought he did, did very, very well. Yeah. Um, Joe, is it possible that both they're both right? And I don't mean Joy. I mean the argument that there is systemic racism. But he and he is an exceptional person. Obviously, he's an exceptional person that he's overcome the whatever life challenges he had. But his point is, and there's progress that's been made. And my life suggests that other everybody else can do it. Look, I I think the problem is that Senator Scott is making a very salient point poorly. Uh, I think Democrats are triggered by uh, that phrase, whether it's a systemic or whether they're triggered by indoctrination. Republicans also triggered by the word systemic. Uh, I don't know a single Republican uh, of note in the country who would disagree with the notion that we have a multi-generational failure for black and brown communities when it comes to our schools, when it comes to safety in urban environments. But uh, Tim Scott doesn't like well, talking well, about I, systemic I, racism. I, I think the reality is there is a word for that. It is called systemic. And so people talk about the outcome without actually uh, finding their way to actually articulate the word. Uh, every Republican talks about what happens in Chicago year after year talks about what happens in urban environments year after year, that we have black children trapped uh, in failing schools because of the so zip code in which they live. So it's a semantics problem, you're saying? So I, I think it, it is partially a semantics problem. The other part of it, I think it is, that to your point, that there are people on the left who have decided that there is only one way to be a black person, only one way to be a Hispanic person, and I think it is the soft bigotry of low expectations that has become acceptable in polite society, that we are always going to talk about white privilege when it actually comports with the way that black people are supposed to act, which in and of itself becomes the problem for what has happened in this country since its inception. Okay, Jay. I just want to put this in context. Uh, We're in June. This means the Supreme Court is going to overturn affirmative action as we know it in the context of university admissions, but broader, more more widely as well. And I take Joe's point. You know, there are certain words that become electrified. Uh, Indoctrination, if we get to talk about that, is certainly one of those. There are also words that are created in order to be electric, like the word grooming, which was a big deal last year and which was weaponized against my community. And it does seem as though talking about systemic issues, that word systemic is a block. I guess where I slightly disagree is I just wished that if, if we took the word systemic out, but we still looked at policies that tried to address the 
sort of recurring patterns that are, that are, I'm trying to avoid saying the word systemic, but that, that, that come generation after generation for people of color in this country, if we actually looked at some of the policies, there there is a disagreement between the two major parties, and we're going to see that in the Supreme Court. So where the rubber hits the road beyond the words, there is a profound difference. And that, for me, again, I think both sides of this maybe didn't say it very well. I don't think Joey Behar, that wasn't her most articulate moment necessarily. But there is a difference here, and it is not just, I don't think, just a matter of languaging. Well, I, I would agree, but I also think it's bigger than Joy Behar, right? I think that you can go all the way back to Malcolm X, who said that the greatest threat uh, to black power and black independence were uh, white liberals from the North, right? That there was no difference between uh, the northern uh, wolf and the, oh, the, nor- the southern wolf and the northern fox, right? That there, at some point, we should be having the conversation what policies work, what policies don't work. Surely we're not going to have all the agreements in the world, but I do think that at some point uh, this conversation becomes the very manifestation of the ugliness that many people say they're trying to rid the country of. Jessica, one of the things that he was trying to to say was that um, there's been so much progress made, and he wants to lean into that, that there's been a lot of progress, and he gave the example of his grandfather, I think, who had to step off the sidewalk to allow a white pedestrian to walk by. That's notable. I mean, don't you think that his point that he's the um, evidence of progress, he's exhibit A of progress and not and that it isn't that he had to be exceptional? I get his point that things are better and they're obviously better. And I think there's no way to argue that. But I mean, I'm younger than Tim Scott and I've certainly experienced racism. So I think to argue that this is no longer an issue doesn't make sense. And I think by focusing so much on this idea of we've made progress, so let's not talk about it, it makes it, you just make it so easy for other people. And I think you particularly make it easier for white people when the voice is coming from a black person. And I think that's really what worries me. I mean, in fairness to Tim Scott, he doesn't say that it's not an issue. I mean, Tim Scott has spoken quite eloquently and frequently about being stopped by the police. These sorts of things are, I mean, the problem with these debates is these binary debates. Like, it's either everything or it's nothing. I did think he did a pretty good job of saying, you know, look, you know, there is a black middle class that is getting bigger and bigger every year. It is very different than 1920. It's very different than 1960. It's very different than 1980. So, like, there has been progress. He doesn't deny that racism exists. Uh, He does... I mean, I, I think that the problem is is one actually of language, is that when you end up having these definitional conversations about what is systemic, you tend to not have any conversations about policy solutions. I mean, look, my, okay. my parents were born in the late 40s, yep. early okay. 50s, right? My, I watched my father, like the earliest image of my childhood, weeping when I watched Jesse Jackson talking about hands that pick cotton uh, will help pick this, this president for election, right? I watched... All of my friends weeping when we had Barack Obama talking about we do not have a black America or a white America, but a United States of America. And so the problem, I think, does come down to language because the question becomes, does the language have the sincerity that allows people to take the words seriously? We know that people can take that language and put it in context when they agree with the person that is articulating that sentiment. When they disagree with the underlying politics, they effectively toss all of it away, which becomes a problem when we have these really, I think, nuanced conversations. Friends, thank you very much for this nuanced conversation. All right, be sure to tune in Wednesday night when Dana Bash moderates our CNN Republican presidential town hall with former Vice President Mike Pence. That is live at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Okay, the debate over books is getting biblical. A Utah school recently pulled the Bible from its school libraries, and now it is considering a new request 
to pull the Book of Mormon. We'll discuss all that next. A Utah school district recently pulled the Bible from elementary and middle school shelves after an anonymous complaint. Now, another complaint wants the Book of Mormon pulled for violent content, like depictions of battles, beheadings, and kidnappings. This is just the latest battle in the nationwide fight over which books students can read at school. My panel is back with me. Jay, you are a rabbi, so Bible fan. Uh, I definitely think the Bible doesn't belong on bookshelves according to this current logic where kids can't handle anything and they're just robots and we have to censor everything that might be triggering. With that Bible, logic, it doesn't. The Bible yes. has descriptions you know, of rape, of sexual violence, of incest, of genocide, of attempted genocide, of genocide by the good guys, right? And killing a bunch of like, you know, young children. So should elementary school kids be able to read this it? This is the perfect time to realize that this whole logic of censorship is stupid. It's stupid whether it's on the left or whether it's on the right. This is ridiculous. The claim that we should be going after books like Heather Has Two Mommies is absurd. The idea that children are automatons and that when you put a book in the library that that means that they're going to turn out a certain way is ridiculous. And this is the great way to talk about it because if we really look what's in the Bible, of course it shouldn't be on all of these shelves if it's true that students can't handle any sensitive material. So I'm delighted that this controversy is happening. <laughs> um, Joe, you also look delighted at that response. I- Look, I, I think that we're really not having the conversation about books. We're having the conversation about trust or a lack of trust. And I think that the reality that has been facing many communities all across this nation is that we no longer have faith in our neighbors. And that is reflected in our politics. It has also become manifest in or our, our politics. teachers. Well, I, I think you know, teachers are our neighbors, right? And so I, I just think that on some basic level, we need to recognize that if we're not going to have a real conversation about how do we get back to loving one another, how do we get back to having conversations with people we disagree with, we're going to continue to have these displays that just ultimately put the insanity of all of this on broad display. Michael? We don't really think this is about the kids, do we? Do we really think that there are kids in Utah that are like, I'm going to go at lunch break and read the Bible in the library? This is not happening. This is exactly what happens when you allow parents to wage culture wars via kids. I did a story in Florida when I talked to somebody who was going up against CRT stuff. And it was some time during the interview where I realized that he didn't have children. Not that he didn't have children in the school. He didn't have children. He was a culture warrior. He was somebody who got, you know, imbued with these ideas via, you know, you know, all the channels that are going after this stuff. I understand some of it. I understand that people are sensitive about this stuff. But to say that the Book of Mormon or the Bible has scenes of violence, okay, well, does one go after, you know, the Diary of Anne Frank? It's they did the go after the Diary of Anne Frank. Well, ex- the but, right but, has censored the Diary of Anne Frank because she was a teenager who had sexual thoughts. Unless yes. there's a teenager who doesn't have sexual thoughts. And that's what I was going Everybody's to say. Everybody's going is, after something. The left everyone is going goes after something. something. The right and, this is, something. and that's actually right because it's a transpartisan issue. This idea that, I mean, go back. I did a search the other day for Huckleberry Finn. Now, it's obviously been a controversial book for a long time. First reference I saw in the New York Times, 1957. 
in the governor, Governor Wagner at the time, the mayor Wagner at the time said, let's take it out of school in 1957. This happens and that's not necessarily something from the right, right? I don't know where this protest comes from. It can come from somebody who is of one religion or someone who opposes violence, whatever it might be. Which is pretty yeah, telling, no, right? We couldn't even tell if this was from the left or from yes, the right. Yeah. But what I was going to say, I, my understanding of this is that it's kind of a malicious compliance thing. So there's yeah. this law in Utah where they're trying to kind of ban all these different types of books, mostly kind of focused on, you know, maybe queer, but like different things that they find objectionable. Mm-hmm. And this is someone who is trying to point out the absurdity of this law. So this isn't necessarily someone who's saying, I think the Bible is terrible. But they're saying, if we are going to go after all these things because they make us uncomfortable or they have an ideology underpinning it that makes us uncomfortable, um, like people who don't want to have books about two moms, things like that, they're like, okay, then let's apply the letter of the law. And if you do, if you apply that, then obviously something like the Bible is going to fall under that. And it's working. Like, yeah. It was pulled off of elementary school shelves. For sure. And I think it points out the kind of absurdity and then I think a lot of school districts are not going to like this. And I think maybe they're hoping they're going to be able to get this law rolled back. Well, I think this also comes back to the stuff we see even in Tennessee, right, with the banning of the drag shows then gets overturned by the court because it's not only that people are engaging in the culture wars at the governmental level and at the community level. They're doing it poorly and they're doing it sloppily and they're doing it in such a way that it makes it actually impossible for the actual underlying concerns that may be justified to be differentiated from the bigotry that it always gets attached to legitimate issues. So I think that becomes a broader issue that we're seeing here now, even in Utah as we speak. Jay? I mean, you know, to Michael's point earlier, this, it's, it's often, I mean, we, say, we sat here talking about a, a, a ban on transgender reality. There have been so many, I've lost track of which ban we were even talking about. And, you know, this is basically, again, using the children, save the children. Anita Bryant said this in the 1970s. It was a lie then, it's a lie now. This is, this is of course, the culture war, and it's using censorship and suppression to simply make it harder for some people to grow up in a place where they think they might belong. All right, guys, thank you very much. All right, now to this. When was the last time you rated an Uber ride less than five stars? Everyone seems to have a near-perfect score. Why is that? What are we afraid of? The concept of five stars next, and also we'll reveal what we've been rated. I'm not one star, I'm a five. Uber says you're a one, buddy. What? Yeah, one star Larry is really Uh, uh, really not a popular guy. My first night on the job, on the old J-O-B. It's your first night? Yeah. Driving? First night driving the old oobs. It's a pretty sweet gig, though. Uh, make my own hours. You know, I could hook you up if you want to be an Uber driver. I'm good. I already have a job. Thank you very much. Yeah, but you could be CEO of your own car. I am a CEO. Of Uber? Oh, my God. Is this undercover, boss? Is that a camera? What rating would you give that driver? A five, obviously. According to a new Wall Street Journal report, it does not matter. Quote, customer ratings have become meaningless, end quote. Riders are giving out five-star ratings willy-nilly. Back with me, Joe Pinion and Michael Moynihan. Um, Okay, do you guys give five-star ratings? All the time. You do, and do you too? I I do. I I think 
I feel bad because sometimes I'm in the car and I'm thinking this person is going to get me killed. But then I also think this person has to make a living. This person has a family to feed. And so uh, woe is the person that gives a one-star review that costs someone the opportunity to actually make a living. I understand, Joe. I totally understand that. But if they're going to get you killed and they're a hazardous driver, wouldn't you be saving someone else's life by giving them a one-star? That is an excellent way to look at it. And yet I can't bring myself to do it. Amazing. (laughs) That is amazing. Michael, why do you give out five stars willy-nilly? So there's two ways of looking at this. The one is when I lie to your producer, and I say that I do it because I care about their job, and and I thought about it later, and, and, you know, what it really is. When you go less than five, they start asking you questions as to why. Yeah. And they're like, why did you do this? They shame you into it. And I'm like, you know what? You don't have time. I don't have time. I just, it's a five, and we're done. See, I give a five all the time, too, because I'm scared not to. They know where I live. Yes, that's yes. why I they give claim a that they're not connected. They don't know your rating. It seems like I. they do know exactly they, who just know. rated yes. them because they just dropped you off yes. a second yeah. ago. Yeah. So that's why I'm scared to do it. Um, okay, but guys, we also happen to have looked up what your ratings are. Yeah, they're not great. Are you guys? Do you give fives because you're afraid that the driver is also going to rate you poorly? Of course, you do. Yes. Yes. Yes, Joe. It's a it's a lot of lies going on here. Yeah, yeah. yeah I got you, <laughs> Joe. Do you? Are you afraid you're of your hoping rating? It's a mutual admiration society. Okay, it's not. So here's what you here's what <laughs> no. we found out. You got all right. First, we'll start with Michaels. You got a lot of five stars. Okay, you got a lot of five stars. A lot of five yes. stars. You got four hundred and fifty. Look at that. Three five stars. Amazing. Twenty one four stars. Yes. Three. Oh no, fifteen three stars. Not great. Three two stars. Yeah. I don't know what I don't yeah. know how you get a two star, but in any event, uh, you, know. you got eight one stars. Okay, let, what did you do in okay. those eight cars? I, look, I think I probably passed out. That's my guess. <laughs> I mean, we could just call it sleeping. But I was going. I mean, I get Ubers when I'm out because I'm very safe. I don't drive. I take an Uber. Great. And sometimes I might, um, you know, fall asleep in the car or something. But or get yeah. a little chatty. But the thing is, in that Wall Street Journal article, a, a female Uber driver said. I do not pick up somebody with like a 4.79 because yeah. I think they might be a murderer. I'm 4. Point what? You're 4.8. That's just two. like a, that's like a but felon. But you know right? who has a 4.79? Joe does. Yeah. Joe, you have 16 one-star ratings from drivers. What did you do, Joe? Oh, I I had the high crime misdemeanor of trying to call Ubers for my mother, my father, and my aunts. And so (laughs) I I think there's a little bit of ageism happening here uh, with the Uber app because on a very real basis... So you're blaming your mother and aunt for the six... Good Lord. On a very real conversation, you call your father, Dad, the car's outside. Yeah, yeah. What? Dad, the car's outside. (laughs) I can't hear you. Car cancels you get one star. So that what ha- happens a lot of the time. And I do think that on a very serious note, if you think about all the people who are older that don't have people to call Ubers for them, uh, it becomes a very difficult transition to try to make sure you can get from point A to point Okay, you win, Joe. You're right. You, you've you actually redeemed yourself. He's, you're, <laughs> he, of, he did blame his you're mother. You're just passing it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm blaming myself. <laughs> I'm not blaming members of my family. It's a little point. different, right? Excellent. Gentlemen, thank you <laughs> thank very you. much. All right, coming up, some of our favorite reporters are here to talk about the stories they are working on for tomorrow. We'll be with them momentarily. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters with me tonight are Harry Anton, Polo Sandoval, 
John Avlon and Miguel Marquez. Also with us, with her reporting from D.C., we have Caitlin Polance. Okay, so let's get right to our CNN exclusive. Sources tell CNN that a room at Mar-a-Lago was flooded in October. That room happened to contain computer servers with surveillance video logs on them. This is raising suspicions among federal prosecutors who are investigating Donald Trump's handling of classified documents. Oh, so, Caitlin, tell us about your reporting and why investigators don't just chalk this up to a pool plumbing problem. Allison, they very well could. It could be a pool plumbing problem. We don't have any reporting that says that they got to the bottom of why the pool draining led to the flooding of the very room where IT equipment and surveillance video was being kept around a time when the Justice Department also wanted access to surveillance video. But, you know, this is one of the things that just fits into a series of events where we know they've been asking questions about that very surveillance footage uh, and whether anybody wanted to possibly tamper with it, whether there was the possibility that there could be gaps in it. We know that they've also been asking questions of witnesses uh, about conversations people had related to this surveillance footage and the keeping of this this surveillance footage. So we're just going to have to wait and see if it were to become part of something. But it is something that is a piece of this obstruction investigation we're picking up on. Um, Caitlin, I know that my panelists have many questions for you. Um, John, this seems like an awfully complicated sabotage plan, <laughs> doesn't it? Well, it it does. They, it's a bank shot. But, yeah. they, but they haven't even, the, the material itself wasn't damaged. The, it doesn't sound like it was damaged. Well, that, that's what I want clar- clarification right. on from, from Caitlin. One, is, is this like a waterlogged Rosemary Woods situation where we, we lost critical tape? And second of all, normally when people have IT equipment, they don't put it in a place that floods easily. Uh, so, so where did that screw up again? Yeah, I've tried to get to the bottom of exactly how a flood happened in this particular room and how the pool draining, how that water would end up inside a room rather than down a drain or, you know, going out to the ocean yeah. uh, since Mar-a-Lago is <laughs> right there. Yeah. But, um, you know, it is one of the things that we know the prosecutors are asking about because there has been a history of mistrust between the Justice Department and the Trump team. And of course, in American history, there's been uh, many, many cases where prosecutors do ask questions about things like this, whether it pieces it together. That's another thing. But, you know, there is an issue here where there's a question of what people intended to do. And that sometimes is just as important as what actually happened. We know that there's Mm -hmm. testimony right now that the video surveillance footage, it wasn't damaged, uh, but that might not actually be uh, that material to what the prosecutors are trying to figure out here. Yes, because, and that was Miguel's question. So Miguel, basically, they don't know if they have all of the surveillance tapes. They they do not know that, uh, from what I understand. And and in the on the spectrum of things that are odd about uh, things in Donald Trump's world, this seems to be on the low end of the pool, if I... Thank you very much. Thank you. The puns abound. There you are. Just prepare yourself, everyone. 11 o'clock show. Uh, But, Caitlin, am I right about that? That they don't know... They do have some surveillance tapes, the prosecutors, but they don't know if they have all of them. Uh, That's right. Well, no, actually, I think that they they do believe that they've received these surveillance tapes back. And every time we've heard from anyone that was on the Trump te- legal team, uh, Tim Parlatori, a former attorney for Donald mm-hmm. Trump, was just on CNN a couple hour- hours ago saying that whenever there were uh, surveillance video requested, 
the team was able to turn it over, at least Trump organization was. But throughout this entire time, there were multiple requests for surveillance footage. Essentially, every time there were new documents being found at Mar-a-Lago, the Justice Department would come back and seek or tell the Trump Organization, protect that surveillance footage. And at some point in time in the fall, uh, one of the men that that is being looked at as part of this instruction, obstruction investigation, uh, we know that he was being spoken to and questioned by the FBI uh, about the surveillance footage and what he was captured doing on the surveillance footage, moving boxes with the very other man uh, who we believe is the person that drained the pool. Mm. Oh, oh, okay. Mm. Okay. That's interesting. What about um, the owner of the pool? The owner of the pool is Donald Trump. <laughs> exactly. So he is notorious for taking to Truth Social and quickly downplaying stuff. I wonder, Caitlin, has he at all commented about this? I haven't seen that yet. I think that much of the attention from Donald Trump on Truth Social today has been uh, about the Justice Department yeah. meeting that his lawyers were able to get today, that they had asked to go to Maine Justice to speak to the Attorney General. They didn't exactly get a meeting with Attorney General Merrick Garland, but they did get the special counsel in a room. Uh, and so there has been uh, a reaction from that where Donald Trump is, is saying essentially publicly that he believes he could be indicted. Okay, so let's talk about that. So that we know that the Trump lawyers, as you say, went and met with Jack Smith. And so what does that tell us, Caitlin? Uh, I'm not exactly sure what that tells us other than it is indicating to us that the Trump team believes that they are at a pivotal moment in this investigation. Uh, we do have a lot of reason to believe that this investigation is nearing its end because of the amount of steps the Justice Department has taken to nail down evidence here, uh, getting Donald Trump's defense attorney to turn over his notes and to testify to a grand jury uh, under the crime fraud exception. That's a really big step. There's mm-hmm. also been a scouring of Mar-a-Lago in every way, not just looking at the pool and the server room, but also talking to, from what I'm told, nearly everybody who works there uh, in the by the FBI and also through grand jury subpoenas. And so All of that put together indicates that the investigation may be coming to a close. And this is the sort of step uh, that a defense team might want to take if they believe an investigation is coming into the close, get an audience with the people in charge and make their case. Harry, do you have a question? Just I, as a consumer of this who isn't paying a lot of close attention... So how many different cases are there right now? <laughs> and where do they all stand? Oh, I just, just want to make sure I math. understand this. You're going to make Caitlin do math right now, okay? Or right, Caitlin, um, do you know how many open investigations there are? Well, in the federal um, system, I mean, in, in the full federal system, I don't know the full amount of open investigations, but the ones that we follow and the ones about Donald Trump right now, we know that there's a federal investigation being led by special counsel Jack Smith, and he's looking at two sides of the coin, uh, which has been publicly stated by the attorney general, that he's lo- there, he is looking into the situation with documents at Mar-a-Lago uh, and h- handled by Trump potentially after the presidency. And then also he's looking at January 6th. That is another thing that is clearly under special counsel Jack Smith's purview. If there are spinoff cases, if those cases uh, come together or cross over in some way, that remains to be seen. Uh, But, you know, there was already a new twist today in some of the public reporting in that 
we have been following grand jury activity being led by the special counsel in Washington, D.C. for months and months. It's a secret grand jury, but you see witnesses and their lawyers coming in and out of the federal courtroom courthouse. And now uh, we do know that there is a grand jury in Florida that's also going to hear a witness this week related to the documents case out of Mar-a-Lago. So we're going to make sense of that as much as we can, but it, it takes a lot of reporting to, to try and see. And, and it might not be something that we know exactly how this is going to function as individual cases or spinoff cases or maybe no cases in mm-hmm. court uh, mm-hmm. until there's some sort of finality from the special counsel's office. Well, we always appreciate your reporting. And thank you for always bringing us the latest on your great reporting. And I like that you were going to even take a stab at how many federal cases there were <laughs> not even involving <laughs> to answer Harry's question. That is very ambitious of you. Thank you for even trying. And were you counting up how many you think that there are? Were, were you just... Well, yeah, I mean, you got out of the Georgia fake electors case. Then you've got New York. You've got the Hush money case. You've got the state case. I mean, no, I think it's at least five outstanding that we know of. Uh, But again, you know, until until indictments go forward, those are just open investigations. All right. Harry, that ho- I hope that answers. I, I feel like my, happy. I got it. You feel satisfied? The numbers. <laughs> the numbers have been answered. Good. You Caitlin, thank you for everything. We really appreciate you. Okay, coming up, the field is getting crowded. It's not just the Republicans. Harry's going to tell us who's entering the race for president, who's becoming a bigger factor than you might expect. Twitter CEO Elon Musk hosting a Twitter interview with Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. today. During the interview, Kennedy claimed that Democrats have turned into Republicans. If you ask questions about vaccines, you are a Trump Republican. And if you uh, if you had a just a religious belief in their efficacy and safety that could not be questioned, you were a Democrat. And so I watched that all happen, all that play out and watch the Democrats slowly become these pro-corporate, pro-war, pro-censorship Republicans, uh, you know, what, what had once been Republicans. Well, the latest CNN polling shows that among Democrats and Democratic-leaning voters, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. gets 20 percent. Harry Anton has been following this story for us. How many people are surprised on this panel by that, that RFK Jr. is getting 20 percent right now? <sighs> Right. right now? Yeah, right now. Well, right now, I mean, not with the polls that came out. Free no, no, I mean that, that it's name recognition. Is, is that what's yeah. happening or is it more? Uh, I, I would argue that it's perhaps a little bit more. Yes, that's part of it. Name recognition. The Kennedy brand is so strong within the Democratic Party. But I think it's interesting to figure out who are these Democratic-leaning voters that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is doing well amongst. And it is, in fact, independent-leaning Democrats. It's the Democratic-leaning part of that equation, and it's those that consider themselves either moderate or conservative. If you look at the numbers where you look amongst those, look at this, the primary support among moderate or conservative independents. Joe Biden's up by just six points there. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is getting 35% of the vote. So it's not these liberal Democrats or these progressive Democrats that think RFK Jr. would call himself. And in fact, if you look amongst those Democrats who call themselves, quote unquote, strong Democrats, right? Mm -hmm. Where is Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s favorable rating? Look at this. His favorable rating is just 27 percent. His unfavorable rating amongst those, quote unquote, strong Democrats is 50 percent. 
Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s strength is, in fact, not within the Democratic base. It's actually amongst those in the middle who could potentially vote in a Democratic primary, which makes sense, but I think would be perhaps a little bit surprising given Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s history of uh, sort of seeing himself as a, a lefty Democrat. Yeah, I'm, I'm not buying the, 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 the categorizations uh, of this because I think it skews beyond moderate independent. Um, I think if you look at the underlying appeal of, of, of a Robert F. Kennedy candidacy, I think, first of all, it is name ID, that Kennedy brand. Um, it's a proxy for, is Biden too old? And then it's getting into how much is about actually Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s actual positions. Um, is it about, you know, his skepticism about vaccines, which had been an issue on the left that migrated right? Um, is it about environmentalism? I'm guessing that's actually probably not the prime driver. No. And it's probably not about, you know, I'm a, I'm a culturally conservative Catholic Democrat, a la the yeah. Kennedy brand, and that's why I'm going here. So, so I, I think, I think this is probably isn't about moderates and independents as much as about an avatar for an alternative to Biden and a little bit about the Kennedy brand and probably a little bit of anti-vaccine. So I actually looked, it turns out there isn't that big of a difference between those who approve uh, of Joe Biden and disapprove of Joe Biden and their support for Kennedy. But I would make the argument that, in fact, someone like a Jack Dorsey, who, you know, has, has endorsed the former head of Twitter, uh, who, yeah. who did he donate to back in the 2020 campaign? He j- donated to Andrew Yang. He was a Tulsi Gabbard type of person. These kind of crypto people, these people who think, oh, I'm smarter than the average individual and I'm going to sort of go away from the Democratic brand. Those types of people are the people that RFK Jr. is doing well amongst. So it's not, you know, when we talk about moderate, conservative, independent or Democrat, it's not that sort of traditional That's, that's way exactly what I mean. It's that the labels don't mean anything. Also, the, the, the Venn diagram overlap between the policies of Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard, that's just a nonsense conversation. And There's nothing. Do, do these polls there. matter this far out? I mean, people are sort of projecting to the future. I, I can't see that they'll be voting that way yeah. in 18 months. So interestingly enough, when you look at the history of primary policy, and it isn't at this point necessarily predictive. And remember, the primaries don't take place in 18 months. The primaries can take place in six, mm-hmm. seven, eight months, depending on the year. Uh, what we know is that those primary polls are broadly something that does tell us something about the future, right? So let's say if you're polling at 35% or up, those folks tend to win the nominations more often than not. Versus if someone, let's say, is polling at 20% or below, those people don't tend to win nominations. So Joe Biden in that poll, right, polling at about 60%. That's a very strong position. He's very, very likely to win the Democratic nomination, Mm -hmm. given that polling. But I still think it's an interesting sort of insight into where the Democratic Party is at this particular Mm -hmm. point, that someone like Kennedy can, in fact, be playing 20 Okay, now tell us about the Republican side and who's getting in this week. So this is everybody's in the pool. You know, (laughs) we were talking about pools in the last segment. Let's talk about pools again. Uh, Folks that are getting in this week, a lot of former governors uh, or current governors. So we got Chris Christie. Uh, the former governor of New Jersey, who is expected to announce this week. We've got Doug Burgum, uh, who's in fact the governor of North Dakota this particular week. And of course, we have uh, former Vice President Mike Pence, uh, who in fact filed earlier today. And if we look right now where they are polling, it's not exactly good. Uh, So Trump leads the GOP field at 54 percent. You see Mike Pence tied for third place at 4 percent, 50 points behind leader. Christie at 1 percent. Bergam at 1 percent, tied for seventh place. But again, there are so many candidates that are jumping in that pool at this point. It's going to be really difficult for any of these low polling candidates to really jump ahead. One other little nugget I'll note about Chris Christie. Uh, You know, he obviously ran in 2016. He was a fan of Donald Trump's no longer. The idea of the Christie candidacy is perhaps to go after Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. 
Here's the one thing of why I view that with a little skepticism, and that is if you look at Chris Christie's unfavorable rating at this point among GOP voters, it is, get this, 44%, which is the second worst ever for a Republican candidate running for the Republican nomination among GOP voters in the June before the primary since 1980. So Chris Christie, not a very popular guy amongst Republicans. This begs the question, who's first? Now, this is the fun question. There you go. Come on. This is the, who, who do you think is first? I, I, I genuinely don't know, which is why I'm asking you. Otherwise, I'd interject. The answer is actually Donald Trump. Ah, there you go. Donald Trump in 2016, before he got in, remember, he launched his candidacy in the middle of June of 2015, excuse me. When he launched his candidacy, all of a sudden, he saw a major jump in his favorable ratings. I'd so you're saying there's a chance, Harry. There's a chance, <laughs> but let's just say I think that people have a far better idea of crypto who Chris Christie is than necessarily knew what Donald Trump would bring to the equation back in 2015. But I do, oh, I, I don't know, Harry, you guys know about this better than I, but I, I don't like when somebody's not even in the race yet and we count them out. I agree. And so, I mean, yes, I understand he's at 1%. I get it. I know the odds are, odds are stacked against him, but anything is possible. You know, that we still have a year to go. Uh, we, yes, we still have seven months to go. And if you had asked me a lifetime ago whether I'd be sitting on this panel with these esteemed um, fellow panelists and you, Alison Camerati, said there'd be no chance. So miracles do, in fact, It is a dream. <laughs> it is your dream. This is a miracle. This I is agree. This is a miracle. Uh, but here's the thing I will note. Sure, <laughs> there is time remaining. And no, we don't count anybody out. But if you look at history and when you see someone who's polling in Donald Trump's position and you see someone polling in Chris Christie's position, the chance of Chris Christie becoming the nominee, while certainly is not zero, is very, very small. If there's one person who history would suggest has a real shot of winning the nomination, it's not Donald Trump. It's someone like Ron DeSantis, who's obviously polling significantly higher uh, in the low 20s than someone like a Chris Christie is at this point. Got it. Well, as you said, you are personification of dreams coming true. So anything is possible. All right. Thank you very much for all of that reporting, Harry. Okay. Meanwhile, California officials open an investigation into two plane loads of migrants arriving in Sacramento, apparently from Texas. But how was Florida involved? Polo has our new reporting. A second private plane carrying migrants has landed in Sacramento, California, with at least 20 people on board. A plane with 16 migrants arrived in the city on Friday. Both flights apparently originated in Texas, but the passengers also carried documents indicating they were in Florida at some point. California officials condemn the flights as stunts by politicians from other states. Okay, Paula was covering this for us. So who sent them there? Who's behind this stunt, if that's what it is? So, Allison, if it seems like history is repeating itself, that's because this is strangely familiar. You'll recall late last year with these flights to Martha's Vineyard, two migrant flights, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, taking credit for that. And right now, according to the attorney general in the state of California, it seems that that is where the paper trail is leading investigators with the Department of Justice there in the state. As our colleague Isabel Rosales has been reporting all day, that is the working theory right now as they continue to speak to these migrants that were flown from El Paso, eventually ended up at the capital of, uh, of the state of California. Two flights in all. Now, what we know at this point is really what the, the attorney general is saying there in the state of California, issuing a statement today. Uh, I want you to read it for yourself, actually. What, he, what, Bob, uh, what Rob Conta, Bonta is saying 
here saying that he continues to collect evidence, still speaking to, again, these migrants, calling this, according to him, state-sanctioned kidnapping, which is why his investigators are actually looking into this right now, calling this immoral, calling it disgusting as well. Um, And also the attorney general saying something interesting here, saying that some of these migrants were basically approached in El Paso um, and were recruited to take part in these flights, just like what we saw last year, uh, and that they were working under the assumption that they would be provided housing and employment and various other benefits when they arrived in California, which much of that was not true. We have reached out to Florida officials for comments, still have not heard back. But look, we also have to remind viewers that there's some recent legislation that Governor DeSantis introduced and passed Uh, which entitles the state to about $12 million in emergency funding for the state's relocation program, which they've tapped into. So doesn't it have to be migrants arriving in your state? What confuses um, me is if Governor DeSantis is taking migrants from Texas and relocating them. How how, is Governor Abbott okay with that? How is that working? So a reminder that this is now presidential candidate Ron Mm -hmm. DeSantis. And of course, the immigration debate is one that is continuing to rage and it's going to be one of the big hot button issues come election day. So this is likely going to be one of the reasons why he's involved. And he's not really shy about um, about talking about the Martha's Vineyard flights. So uh, it, again, we're still waiting to hear back from him regarding these particular flights. But in terms of what California officials, they are strongly condemning this. We also had an opportunity to hear from the Lawyers for Civil Rights group, which is uh, the group that's actually representing some of the asylum seekers that were transported to Martha's Vineyard in a class action lawsuit. They have representatives right now on the ground in Sacramento, and they're speaking to these asylum seekers trying to gather the facts and that paperwork that they say originated from Florida uh, to see if they potentially could join this class action lawsuit in addition to the criminal investigation that's ongoing. I mean, why would Ron DeSantis shy away from this fight, right? right? If he's running for the Republican nomination for president, which he is, because we think back to 2015, what was the number one issue that Trump ran on back then? Sure. It was immigration. Right. It's being, you know, taking a hard line on immigration and every, if I recall correctly, in every single one of the exit polls in which Mm-hmm. Voters said immigration was their top issue on the Republican side. Trump won those voters. It's not the yeah. fight that I that confuses me. It's him going to another governor's territory and doing it. He's not relocating it's also very people expensive. from Florida. Well, this is what happened. He's you're you're running from president. All of a sudden, you can you can move people around the country at will. Can uh, you? No, you can't actually. <laughs> but that's the that's the that's the, the clearly the theory behind the troll. Uh, which is all about playing to the base. And, and, and also, I think, legitimately raising awareness about the problem that's been on the border by, by moving it uh, be, beyond the border. Agree. There, I, I agree with you. There has been an upside, I think, to this, because then the northern states that don't normally deal with this have had to roll up their sleeves and figure out what to do At about it. At great cost. For sure. So, in fact, I'm even reluctant to say stunt because I think that it, it's on all of our shoulders. So everybody in the country has to be able to deal with this. But I just don't understand. Is Governor Abbott cool with look, this? Well, remember, he's also been using emergency funds out of the state of Texas to provide bus transportation to migrants here to New York City, right? This is something that we've seen before. But it's also really important to remember that these asylum seekers, they have told me time and time again on the border, they don't plan to stay in these border communities long term. What you hear from these Republican governors in Texas and Florida is that they want to provide relief to these border communities. But the reality is these asylum seekers, they're just sort of they're just making their way through these communities. Their end goal is California, is Chicago, Washington, D.C., and for nearly 47,000 that are still in the care of New York City, uh, the Empire State as well. So some might see this as he is giving these asylum seekers a transportation that they normally would have to pay for. Instead, they're on a private charter flying to California.
California officials say that they want to charge somebody criminally with this, but I, right. I, I can't see who would they, who would they charge who would and for what? Now, you do have, we have heard these versions from these migrants on the ground that they were approached by recruiters, mm-hmm. by these individuals that right. painted a really pretty picture about life in California. So there might be maybe some leverage there, but we'll have to see exactly where that investigation leads. So they're looking into the possibility of pursuing criminal charges and certainly civil action. One little sort of nugget from the polling that you spoke about earlier, hinted at Allison, was essentially that we all have to share the burden and maybe now New York is experiencing what some of those border towns mm-hmm. have been experiencing for a long time. And what we know from the polling is, you know, New York City voters say they don't believe that the city can handle this, you know, all these migrants. And more than that, they, New York City voters are very happy or perfectly fine with sending some of these folks upstate, which has been one of those big issues. Right. Was it was it Orange or Rockland County? I can't recall which. Both. Both. Yeah. Um, where, you know, the county commissioners up there are like, whoa, wait a yeah. second. Uh, it's quite a interesting. Yes, really- people definitely have felt differently once it's in their backyard yeah. Yeah. than they have just theoretically talking. But about again, it. the key difference is many don't want to stay in Texas. They do stay in New York and all these other cities that we've mentioned for the duration of their asylum proceedings. And, and, and the, Bi- the Biden administration could also alleviate some of the pressure by granting work permits, correct? By speeding up yes. the process of obtaining those work authorizations. And that continues to be the heart of this issue, regardless of whether the number of asylum seekers that are arriving here in New York go up or down. The really reality is, again, they're all over the country, but here in New York alone, there's 47,000 that are still in the care of New York City. So the argument that we continue to keep hearing from city officials is, um, President Biden, please expedite these work yep. authorizations so they can get to work and pay their way out of these city Correct. shelters. Oh, thank you very much for that. It's recording. complicated. <laughs> All right. Artificial intelligence already making an impact on the presidential election. John has some new reporting on what's reality when we come back. We are in the midst of the AI revolution, and fake content is now apparently everywhere. So what does that mean for the 2024 presidential election? John Avlon is reporting on this. So, John, you're already seeing fake, what, campaign ads? What what, what are you seeing? You're you're already, look, we've talked for a long time about the danger of disinformation or politics and misinformation uh, and the rise of AI and how it's happening so quickly and so intensely. Now these two strains are coming together and you're already seeing it make an impact in the uh, the upcoming presidential race. Just recently, we saw the RNC put out an ad that was all basically AI-generated uh, content showing sort of a dystopian future should Biden be uh, reelected. Uh, you know, the streets of San Francisco being shut down in martial law and and, and things like this. This is actually a relatively restrained use uh, of AI compared to some of the other blatant disinformation not put out by institutional actors. Um, the Trump campaign, always leading into sort of a, a trollish uh, posture to its uh, competitors. Uh, we're hosting a, a, a fake Twitter spaces room for the DeSantis, DeSantis campaign featuring uh, some, some uh, lowlights from human history. Hold on, hold on. This is, this is President Trump's campaign that is fake and it's pretending to be a Ron DeSantis campaign ad? Uh, no, a, a Ron DeSantis Twitter spaces, uh, which is remember when he had the, the botched uh, launch. Of course. Yes. So th- this is this is their this is their uh, nightmare version of, of what a, uh, a Twitter How's space is. How's anybody about. supposed to be able to tell what's real? Well, 
This is the larger question. That obviously is a troll and, and a fairly transparent one. But you're seeing other things come out, like we saw a, a, a you know, fake uh, announcement of, a, of a, an explosion at the Pentagon or an image of Donald Trump being arrested. These are totally fabricated, non-institutional uh, you know, actors. And the danger is that these things go viral. And, and of course, that starts, that just sets off the ripple of disinformation. And I think we need to confront the fact that we are going to be seeing more of this coming up and people may be susceptible to it. So that raises the question of what kind of regulations can be put in place. And what's the answer? Well, I, I don't, I, look, don't look to me to figure out what regulations and how we're going to monitor this situation. But I would just say that this fear, you know, that John is, you know, putting out there is a fear that a lot of Americans do have about AI. They should. They should have it. You but know, I think most people look at stuff online now and think, is that their first question is, is that real? Do you think they're discerning enough? Well, look, people went to the very low end of the of the internet very quickly after all the talk about it was going to bring freedom and democracy and everything else. But I think we've been through this for a little while now, and I I I would hope, I would think that people are a little more. I, 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 I'm interested, and and I, I think there's plenty to suggest, and Harry probably has got the data to suggest that people aren't necessarily gravitating towards media literacy courses. In fact, the the EU is pushing one solution, which is to actually make the platforms responsible for identifying AI generated content as a way of flagging for people on screen, if you will. But that's going to have its limits because this is a game of whack-a-mole, which is, of course, the problem. But does the U.S. have any plan for regulation as we head into this presidential uh, plan election? That is a Strong, concrete word. <laughs> uh, aspirations, goals. But I, I think it really just goes to show why they, we need to get our, our act together and fast. The industry is, is crying out for regulation. Congress, there are some bills that are being put forward. But this is all happening so fast. And always our laws lag behind tech innovation. But this has critical implications for our democracy. So let's get off, you know, you know they got to start dealing. What was important to point out also when you were showing that example, I don't know if you saw how the control room actually put up a label on the top left. You don't see that a whole lot. Obviously, we're using this to to lay out these examples. So I Mm -hmm. think the weight, I imagine, will really be on these platforms and on these networks to to highlight it. Uh, Yeah, I mean, if it ever gets on the networks, right, the people who are going to believe this garbage are people who are online who think they're smarter than everybody else. They see a tweet and they want to go with it. Well, but the people who are going to believe this garbage are people who want to believe this garbage, whether it's good, bad, or otherwise. I think most people are a little more discerning. I, I, I would just note how much vaccine misinformation right. was there out there, how much misinformation about the 2020 campaign, how many people believe the falsehood that the 2020 election was somehow stolen. So there is definitely a history, recent That's history, right. of people in this country willing to believe things that simply put aren't true. And I'd like to think that it's at least partially on the media, though we can't cover every single base to be able to point it out. I, I think that's a, a recent CNN poll showing over 60 percent of Republicans still think uh, that there was some some malfeasance in the 2020 election completely baselessly. Um, that's a receptivity problem based on confirmation bias and these sort of hothouses of, of disinformation where people are siloed and not open to confronting facts. That's an even deeper problem. Yes, but I mean, we haven't solved any of that as we no. approach, as AI, you know, gallops towards us. we got to get ahead. So, yes, hopefully, um, well, I hope everyone watching has critical thinking skills. In the meantime, up next, an update on the mother of the six-year-old boy who took a gun to school in Virginia and shot his teacher. Miguel is going to fill us in on what's happening to her now.
Well, the mother of the six-year-old boy who brought a gun to school and shot his teacher is expected to plead guilty to federal felony charges this week. And Miguel Marquez is following this story for us. So why federal felony charges? Uh, well, she's been charged both by the feds and at the state level as well. This is Deja Taylor. She's 26 years old. And it, it does appear she will, in the next few weeks, probably plead guilty to two federal charges. The unlawful use of a controlled substance while possessing a firearm and making a false statement while purchasing a firearm. That's because when she went into the gun shop in July of 2022 and she was doing the federal background check, it asked the question, are you the, an unlawful user or addicted to marijuana or any depressant, stimulant, narcotic drug, or any other controlled substance? And she checked no. She was using marijuana at the time. Marijuana is legal in the state of Virginia. It is illegal by the feds. So she essentially lied on, on that form. I wonder and how they figured out that she was using marijuana at the time. Because she admitted to using marijuana, and then the state charges that she faces are felony child neglect and recklessly leaving a firearm to endanger a child. So that will uh, come down the the, the pike. But um, right now she's facing federal charges that she will probably plead guilty to. What I think is most interesting about this case is the same thing that I thought was most interesting about the Oxford, Michigan case, which is parents being held responsible. This is different. I mean, she's a, he, her child's six years old. So obviously the parent is responsible and didn't have the gun locked up in a way that they had to. But the idea that parents need to be more responsible around their minor children, meaning under 18, and guns, this seems, is this a trend? I mean, well, it's, sadly, it's more of a trend than we would like to admit. But it, it, there, there are examples of this in more than one state. Of parents uh, being of, of parents charged. of 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 children taking their parents' guns, right. but whether or not the parent gets charged is another issue. In this particular case, her lawyer claims that the gun was in the bedroom closet on yeah. the top shelf with a gun lock on it. But if you're going to put a gun lock on the on the gun, you better make sure the kid cannot get the key. Um, he took the gun to school, uh, sat there for most of the day. This is also a kid who had a history of, of violence, even though he was six years old, had a disability. There's a lot of background to this. And uh, sat there for most of the day with the gun at 2 p.m., pulls it out. His teacher is reading. She puts her hand up. The bullet goes through, hits her in the chest. And she survived and the shoulder. Uh, but she's now suing the Sioux dist- uh, school district as well because they, she feels that they did not do enough to, to help out. But... Um, yeah, it, it, you would like to think that more parents would be held responsible, um, as someone who went through gun training a thousand years ago, that is the, the, the one thing that they hit so hard that you have to secure the gun. You have to make sure that it's, well, I mean, it, it, look, it, it sounds like this, this, the mother had a, a trigger lock, which is a step in that direction. Um, the incoherence of, federal and state marijuana laws, putting that aside, because that's a technicality. The issue is, look, it's a six-year-old, right? So you want to blame somebody. The teacher's blaming the school. Uh, people are trying to blame the mother because you can't effectively blame a six-year-old who is the person who pulled the trigger. And yet gun manufacturers are liable, are, are, are sort of protected from, from any liability. Uh, and so we're, we're pointing a lot of fingers at different people looking for who to blame. Um, but, you know, there's one party... It's completely inoculated from that, yes. according to federal law. And that seems to be an incoherence. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know this, that gun manufacturers are generally protected. The the uh, parents in Newtown were able to find a loophole but, mm-hmm. and sue Remington, but that's very rare. Very, very, very rare. I'm just going to myself, what the heck are we doing here? We have children, young yeah. children, bringing guns to school. 
being able to get access to it, I don't know, you know, again, I, I'm listening to you all to understand the case a little bit better that up, up on a thing and at the climb, and, but we're still able to get it. Mm-hmm. And right. I, I just think this just goes back to the larger question of what are we doing in this country on guns? And, you know, you, you hinted, you, you said it earlier on, Miguel, which was, you know, we talk about responsible gun ownership. Something here went clearly wrong, and this isn't the only example. Something is going wrong in a lot of different places, and it just, it just it, honestly, it's just amazing to me. The, the, if, you, if you introduce a gun into a household, into a school, into the, the likelihood yes. of it being used goes up exponentially. Right. And there are just so many guns in this country. Whether that trigger lock was properly placed on the gun, whether it was even locked at all, whether the kid had access to the key, all things. Kids are very curious about guns once they see them. Um, I mean, we, we do fetishize in our films and pop culture and everything yeah. else. Everything is about guns. And you can understand why a kid might want to see it, play with it, you know, go shoot a gun. I mean, that's, and that's what boys do. I do you think uh, it's it interesting just, the federal government is really, or presumably sending a message by filing a federal charge against mom for this particular reason. It's something that, at least in my coverage of shootings, I, you don't see very often. Mm. Because of lying in that ATF form whenever you go purchase a weapon. And, and is this something that clearly has come back? Well, had she checked yes, she would not have been able to buy the gun. So, and, and marijuana, despite so many states legalizing yes. it, it is still a controlled substance at the federal level. And it's still on there. And there's even a warning that goes with it, indicating that it may be legal in your state, but it's not legal federally. So if you check That's no, it better be no. That's a conversation, but it's completely <laughs> insane that we have this incoherence between the state. And True. Yes, but I mean, I guess that the larger point is that maybe this will be a deterrent if parents hear about this yes. case and the Michigan case for the parents to just be much more mindful of where their gun is, if it's locked up, where their kids are. Do they want to have a gun in whatever room is accessible to the kids? All that stuff. Hopefully this will send a message. We hope. We, we live, live in hope. Attention. Yeah. Yeah. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Great to have you, you all here. Us. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it was actually really fun. And thanks for all the reporting. Um, All right. Tomorrow on CNN This Morning, a record number of women are in the labor market, as you probably know. Well, now experts are debating why. So tune in for that. Thanks so much for watching us tonight. And our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.